I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Hi, everybody. It's Lama Suryadas again, the American Lama, with my Awakening Now podcast on the Be Here Now network, inspired by Ram Das. And you could find us there in many episodes of this and other spiritual teacher and inspiring people's podcasts. So, Today, we're lucky to have with us a poet, a former TV anchor person and street reporter, Francesca Maxime of Brooklyn, originally of Boston, by way of Harvard, had a career in media in Boston and New York, etc. Bloomberg TV, CNN, and um, all that. She wrote a book of poetry called Rooted, a memoir, her family didn't like it. They tried to block publication. She wrote another book of poetry, Rerouted. So she's a hot commodity and a little provocative and controversial, very interesting. I enjoy getting to know her um, this year. She's one of the young and up-and-coming meditation teachers, and she has a message, very positive, after the, some certain trauma that she's gone through in her life, which she might um, share with us. So Francesca, Thank you so much for being on my podcast today. In fact, uh, if I remember, I was on your podcast last week, but who can remember? Well, what's time anyway at this point? Right. And what's memory anyway at this point? So thank you so much, Lama Das. It's great to be here with you again and to be uh, on Awakening, Awakening Now. I love that, um, the title because someone told me recently, Instead of saying woke, like people will say, oh, you're so woke, they said it should be hashtag waking. Yeah, waking. it should. Maybe we should start that. I don't know how to start hashtags, but I started the awakening movement with my awakening trilogy, Awakening the Buddha Within and others in the 90s, and it's really caught up, caught on. Um, so I, I don't know about woke. I heard about it recently. I like that. I know about higa, the Danish word for being mellow, cozy, and sort of comfy. Right. Yeah, I've my been mom. Thinking about forest bathing from the, my Japanese friends, which I could certainly relate to, which is not about water. It's about nature walking and bathing in the beauty or harmony, the hozo, as the Navajos call it. You know, may you walk in beauty and harmony, hozo. But um, we have our own kind of sayings in Tibetan, like imaho. In our Dzogchen tradition, Imaho is the shortest teaching, and it means wondrous, like, wow, Eureka, amazing, yes. Yeah. But that's the spirit of the thing. 
not intimidating religious towers and uh, fire and brimstone, but the miracle of aliveness and sharing this moment together and just thank you, thank you and thank you on all sides. Yeah, well, it's that sense of awe when we're in nature sometimes where we're just um, absorbing it. I, I finally got to the beach this weekend and it was just like, ah, finally here, it happened, you know, and I was, uh, I was thrilled because uh, last year I was having some health issues and I couldn't go really that much. And so it was just for me a reminder that's sort of my happy place when I get to the beach. And um, it used to be down the Cape and now it's over, you know, here uh closer in the in new york waters but it is a reminder and the and nature in general outside in the woods where i used to live in upstate new york up in binghamton it was like i remember the house that i had had all glass walls and glass windows and it was set back on you know several acres and i felt like snow white there were all these little birds and bears and deer and turkey and all these things and i remember thinking this is like church you know, it's like, it's like, uh, it felt to me like this, you know, forest yeah. cathedral. So sacred. Mm -hmm. very sacred, very connected. And when I abruptly left uh, that place, um, which was sort of the original trauma, uh, well, original adult trauma, um, my ex had dumped me a couple days before what would have been my wedding. I really thought half of the loss that I felt wasn't just the relationship or the community or the job or the friends or all the other things that I lost, um, future kids, whatever, but that sense of place and spirituality, that sense of connection with the earth, that sense of, um, I don't know, it was just a sacred space for me to be in that house and to be literally in nature and I had a little flying squirrel that would come and hang mm. out and it just was mm. I, I really did I sort of felt like Snow White I don't know who the seven dwarfs were or where they mm. were but yeah. I, you know I was trying to sweep my way through and you know the sweep and the swoop and the swope I don't know didn't work out so well but here I am with you and that's working out maybe so one of the dwarfs was your ex and he wasn't up to you know the mensch that you deserve and need well thanks i don't know what are they sneak sleepy snoozy they sound like the yeah. five hindrances itchy and you know yeah <laughs> twitchy and yeah they sound like the hindrances i know the seven <laughs> the five hindrances yeah <laughs> of buddhism oh. so i also go to the cathedral of nature just kneeling in the garden is you know, sacred space and the cathedral of the woods. And of course, the mother goddess, the ocean. I love water. Whenever I see water, I naturally meditate. And I don't mean I close my eyes and try to concentrate on my breath or say a mantra. I mean, the ocean does it for me. And I just listen and dissolve and be there and let it wash everything away. So I call it a natural meditation or co-meditating with the ocean. But it could be any kind of water, almost any kind of water. It's very um, harmonious and peaceful and flowing for me. Maybe that's my element. I don't know. So I went to the beach also uh, on Monday here in Plum Island Nature Preserve Bird Sanctuary. Maybe you remember it off of Newburyport, Massachusetts. Yeah, no, it's gorgeous over there. Um, my mom would take us and, and we would go down to uh, Wellfleet all the time down the Cape. And there's the Audubon Society, the Bird Sanctuary, right next door to where we would stay. And... Um, you know, my grandfather growing up, I mean, we talk about, uh, I do this somatic experiencing training now as, as part of the uh, adjunct in terms of trauma training to the meditation teacher training that I'm in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's a way of learning how to work with the nervous system um, and, and sort of get it to more of a place of equanimity, if you will, not just mentally, but somatically. And my grandfather would always take me out for walks in the woods and show me what a lady slipper was and what the Solomon mm -hmm. Was. And, you know, he was he was sort of this natural physicist where he wasn't only just sort of this lumberjacky, burly kind of a guy, who, mm -hmm. um, you know, was very strong physically and, you know, worked in a factory for 44 years and Italian, you know, Italian immigrant kind of guy. But he grew this amazing garden and he just had this mm -hmm. real sense of generosity and would give to people uh, St. Vincent de Paul on Sundays and visit the sick and always go to the grave and tend the grave. We, you know, 
And he was my big resource, but he was very connected to nature, mm. very connected to the elements, very connected to the earth. Um, and figured out even how to sail, you know, took me sailing at Hopkinton State Park growing up, uh, you know, with my mom and, and figured it out on his own by just reading a little book, yes. I mean, you know. So this, this sense of intuition and nature and being more at one with something without having to like worry so much about it and trusting your gut uh, is really something he kind of taught me, I think, was embodied and showed me without me having to kind of think too much about it. And I really worry so much about these kids that sometimes just grow up without that because they're on their screens or they're in concrete cities and stuff and they don't have that kind of uh, touching of the earth as the Buddha did, you know, when it shook, when he got awakened, you know, that people don't have that experience of witnessing and saying, hey, I can be held. I am being held by the earth. I am being held by the ground beneath me. And this is not just me all alone. You know, this is yeah. other people, but also the earth. We're all part of it. And we're all held in that embrace. Yeah. And we are part of nature. Yeah, that's beautiful. So your grandfather was like your first mentor or he was a real bodhisattva? That's totally. Beautiful. Totally. I mean, what was his name? He gave, he, gave, he gave a lot of grief to other people, but not to me. <laughs> his little darling. Well, his name was Louis, Luigi, Louis Mignani. And, That's good. Uh, yeah, he was, he was um, you know, he would hold two cinder blocks in each hand. He was a stonemason. Uh, right. He worked at the Telecron factory in Ashland for 44 years. And, uh, you know, super, super strong. He would write a brick wall that he just laid. If it, the level wasn't quite right, he would yeah, like move it. push it. <laughs> yeah. One of those. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like, you know, he was one of those people when they talk about safety, like, so, you know, talk about scientific stuff like polyvagal theory and, you know, uh, Stephen Porges and uh, the social engagement system. He was one of those people around whom I just never felt, I never felt threatened or unsafe. I always felt protected and, and cared for and cherished and, and felt like I was important. And, you know, he really, he got a kick out of me because mm -hmm. I was his first grandchild. And so I got the benefit of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just was uh, so grateful for his being strong in an otherwise tumultuous at times childhood with my father being somebody who really couldn't and didn't model any of those things whatsoever, uh, who was much more threatening and, and dangerous and unpredictable. So, you know, have to remember, I think some of the things that we do have from the past that we can recall to bring us a sense of balance because our negativity bias does pull us right back into the trauma. And when we get triggered, we're just like only remembering that, but using, as I know the Tibetans do with the visualization, remembering even somatically and sense wise, Hey, there was this really good, strong, I don't know, even Buddha like figure yeah. that was my grandpa right. that I feel is still a resource for me to tap into. Yes, absolutely. So you went from, you know, TV in the media world and after almost 20 years and then you decided to step out of that and take another direction. And, um, <laughs> you could say that. You said, you, you told me that you started to ask yourself the questions you asked, used to ask other people, like, what are you doing or why? What are you looking for? Tell me. So you started to ask yourself these important questions. So where you know i know you're still in the bardo in the shoot in the passageway on the journey francesca but you have a very positive message so what have you made of, out of this trauma how have you risen like a phoenix from the ashes and um you know what's your message well first of all my message is there's nothing wrong with you you're not flawed you know um i think one of the original stories about anything that i learned when uh I have this other trauma that happened a couple of years ago, which I'll mention, um, I told Sharon about it, um, but I'll go back to it, was that it's not so much that you're the problem, it's that sometimes, you know, we learn certain habits based on our survival instincts and based on our own survival adaptations that become problematic. So don't confuse this uh, conditioned, uh, unskillful, uh, potentially harmful to self and others behavior with the core 
of who you really are mm -hmm. and the core of what you're really about. And some people could call that Buddha nature, consciousness, presence, God, yeah. whatever. I don't really care. But just this idea of not feeling as though I am only the sum yeah. of your that. personality or your conditioning. Yeah, because you can work with that. That's workable. Yeah, that's right. workable. But if you think that that's all of who you are, you'll never even try to do it because yeah. it's like an impossible task. <laughs> well, it seems impossible. Well, that's where mentors or inspirations, you know, come in, whether it's your grandfather or you or us or the other people who are doing this work of trying to be a light in the world, not a blight on the landscape, you know, not selfish and greedy, but trying to contribute and bring everybody up or home together, however you want to look at it. And of course, there's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of violence and suffering and even unfairness in this world, if you want to look at it that way, social injustice and so on. So we're all very uh, concerned about this. Like, how do we heal the trauma of whole countries, the refugee, the countries with refugee problems, the countries with 50, 100 years of civil war problems, you know, the bitter sectarianism in places that we're familiar with, like the Middle East and the Balkans, but certainly in other places that we're not familiar with, like in Burma and in Korea and in other places. So I'm thinking a lot about this these days. And, you know, these days of building walls and abrogating treaties, I'm thinking about, you know, not to keep walls or build walls around our hearts and to keep our agreements and to remember we're all interconnected and in it for the long run together, not, not just uh, instant gratification or, you know, lie and call it alternative facts. <laughs> think you're getting away with things and sweep it under the rug and say it never happened. Yeah, but where's the root of that? Like Tara would talk about, Tara Brock, you know, like what's underneath it, right? What's underneath the anger? Is it maybe fear? What's underneath the fear? Is it maybe sadness? What's underneath the sadness? Is it maybe longing? What's underneath the longing? Is it sort of loneliness? So it's, you know, and going through that, whatever it is for you. I mean, who knows? Yeah, it's very revealing. It's, you know, don't just take the first thing. It's like layers of shale, you know, when you're looking at the, mm -hmm. the earth. I mean, don't assume that what you see on the top is the thing, you know, and underneath the core of the planet, it's like molten lava. You're all like mixed up in there, all kinds of heat and possibility. You're not really just this one static thing. And we think that we have to cling to that superficial anger stuff or fear or retribution or whatever it is, because that's all we got. But what do they say? Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I think that's roomy or something. You know, I mean, get yourself a nice fat Airbnb, you know, spread out. Why are you going to hang out in the closet? You know? Um, well, I like, Suri Das says that my mind ain't the best neighborhood for me to live in. Yeah, yeah. Like, so not to believe all my thoughts and, and, you know, just my way of seeing it and realize, you know, look into this to see if it's not true, but that everything is so subjective and it's not what happens to me, but what I make of it and what I do with it that makes all the difference. It, it is, and I'll say that I don't like it when we get stuck with this whole thing of like willpower, right? Like, I'm not a huge fan of that. It takes what, virya, discipline, you know, sort of uh, yeah. attention effort. To, to effort to sort of sustain. Heroic effort, effort even, yeah. Yeah. Joyous heroic effort, period. But we don't want to get confused with the idea that like, it's all our fault, right? Right. Like, yeah. and we don't want to get caught up in blame and so this business of what's the balance of recognizing the things that came, you know, for wrong view, the, obfusc the obscurations and the obfuscations, and then the clarity of right view is removing that. It's not adding, right? It's taking away. So we're getting to what's already there that's been clouded. Yeah, clear vision. Then we can see things as they are, not as we are, or as we would like them to be only. So I've been doing meditation for a long time and studying me, practicing these things. So how is it that you come to clarity and focus and bring together attention and intention, you know, in your life now? 
Um, well, lots of different ways. I mean, I have different practices. I think if I were practicing, I could practice all day. I said, you know, I always thought or was told that I should be a cactus, but I'm really a sunflower. Who <laughs> <laughs> said you should be a cactus? You mean like, because you can do without water or... Or yeah, you don't have needs. Nutrients forever. Yeah, you don't have needs. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, you survive. Well, that's, that's harsh. Well, we all have needs. Yeah. Well, welcome to the world <laughs> of, of of my experience. Um, and you know, you. I guess the the difference is is that nowadays I'm more intentional about the practices that I that I do and I pay attention to. Um, you know, all the things that have been helpful, mindful writing, including the poetry, uh, gratitude lists, uh, you know, the somatic work, the body, you know, scanning and, and stuff, obviously the mindfulness and the meditation, the sangha, going to sit with people, uh, yes. the community yoga. Is very important community. Yeah. Love, loving. Support. Yeah. Um, just a variety of different things and also meeting with teachers and also spending a lot of time by myself. I mean, I never ever could do it. The first time I tried to meditate after my ex dumped me, I thought I went right into the garbage dump. Like, do you, oh. remember, do you remember Star Wars? I don't know if you remember this, but there was a scene in the original Star Wars, one of the first three movies back in the day, when the good guys are in a dumpster in the middle of the, uh, you know, spaceship or whatever. And the thing is closing in on them. And there's like a creature underneath that's like the Loch Ness monster kind of a thing. And the walls are literally closing uh -huh. and there's garbage everywhere. And finally they like stuck a stick in it or something and they were able to climb yeah. out. Mm -hmm. Well, that was me. Except for the stick in it was just get the hell off the cushion because this is not happening. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't handle it. So fast forward almost a decade or whatever, I got arrested because I failed to use my directional and I failed to take a breathalyzer when a cop asked me to and I spent the night in jail in New York City. And I was like, what is this about? This is not a life that I'm supposed to be having. This yeah. is like what, but the beauty of it is I was gifted with an incredible, you know, set of circumstances that I'm able to, you know, be here now, quite literally, and don't have, um, you know, repercussions from that. And I say this because shit happens to people, excuse my French, <laughs> but you know, like things do happen, but it was full stop from that day forward. Just mm. like Krishnadas talks about when Mr. Shwari told him, you know, like, what are you doing with this, whatever he was, I think drugs or something. And, and he just never did it again. It was for me, I never drank again. I became a vegetarian on the spot. I started um, doing all of these meditations and yoga practices. I lost a bunch of weight. I stopped engaging in behavior and people that were um, detrimental to me. And uh, I went through the five precepts and I pretty much followed them to the best of my ability without a lot of resistance, without, you know. Um, well, you were ready. Well, it's like, you know, maybe that the rest was a precipitating event, like the, the catalyst. 50, the 50th time. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> That's what they call sudden enlightenment. After 99 hit times hitting the stone, the 100th time suddenly falls apart. But don't forget the 99. Uh, my mom doesn't forget the 99. <laughs> you know, the path. And, and, and it keeps us humble also. And then, I mean... And, you can see other people going through similar things and you really identify, empathize with them. You know, been there, done that, and be patient and, you know, back them and get out of their way and be there for them, but not smother them, you know, mother them. Hard. It's hard to be loving and compassionate without the attachment, right? I it mean, is. you're attached in a way that you care, but not attached in a way yeah. that you're expecting an outcome to be a certain way, even if it's a supposedly good outcome you know right well a major message i think is about doing what needs to be done or what's quote right which i don't want to get into right now but right and wrong but doing what needs to be done and letting go of the results i mean that's the message of the Tao to ching that's the message of krishna to arjuna in the bhagavad-gita that's a huge message that's the message in the bible not my will but thine O lord and that doesn't mean being a doormat but doing what has to be done and letting go and whatever happens, happens. And you keep trying to do your best and letting go and whatever happens, happens. Because we're not in control, but we have to do our part. 
Yeah, and I think that's tough for folks, you know, like this idea of, well, then I'm not striving and I'm not efforting, but I am. Like, I think well, it's, that's all just thinking. Yeah. That's all just thinking. Yeah. It, it gets people a little bit wound up, I think, yeah. in my experience. Um, and then, you know, my whole thing is, who am I not harming, right? Like, let's start there. Like, can I, can I be, can I be wise enough with what I'm saying to myself and how I'm talking to myself and to other people? And, you know, when I do something, do it with a certain amount of deliberateness, you know, with a certain amount of intention that is sort of within a framework. That's what I love about the Buddhist teachings. It's not, you know, some of these other things are amazing, like, you know, Tankas and you know different practices and all of that uh and vipassana has its own you know tradition and all of these things but what i think is so amazing about it is is that it's really just hey here's a way of life that might be helpful to you yeah. it's you the same and beautiful way of life if it fits you if you, you know if it works for you that's why i always say my way is the best way for me <laughs> There's so many only ways, you know, I have, I found my only way. It's not the only way for everybody. It fits me. I'm happy. Thank God. Thank God for non-theistic Buddhism. That's what I would say. Thank God for Buddhism. It's kind of a joke. Right. But I'd right. probably be dead otherwise. Well, some people maybe don't need it. I mean, my grandfather was a Catholic, right. you know, exactly. a person. So he had the church yes. sort of, you know, behind him or yeah. It, his relationship with God in that way. Uh, but he lived a very rough and tumble existence. I mean, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean he didn't have other qualities that were, that were helpful, you know? Well, it's all part of the li living spirit, you know, not just black and white. There's so many colors in the rainbow or in just the whole brocade of life. We can't be too square about separating the sacred and the profane. And some, some of the greatest bodhisattvas I've known were au natural, like your grandfather, like Exxon Ken of Woodstock, New York, where I used to live in the, in the 70s. He had been in Korea. He had a steel plate in his head from a wound. He was, you know, holding a can of Colt 45 malt liquor most days. He had a short gray brush cut. You know, he'd been a Marine in Korea. He knew what was important. And he saw his buddies young die in that frozen mud there he knew what was important and he was not chasing after single mothers to pay their gas bills you know and, and um he filled up their cars and he put new winter tires on for them and if they never paid you know he didn't go looking for them either he was like a real bodhisattva i always appreciate him and to be with him you know he would curse and he would tell dirty jokes but it was all in good spirit and I've known plenty of people like that, and they're not in church either. And you know, so one can have a good heart and know what, what keep your eye on the ball with or without an institution. Yeah, knowing what to do and when to do it, and when to not do things. Sometimes, also, um, you know that that wise restraint. You know, we were talking a little bit off camera about uh, renunciation or what to sort of pull back on a little bit and. And also that means speech. Sometimes we don't say mm -hmm. the things that we want to say, which doesn't mean that we can't feel them or notice them or recognize that they may irk us, but then we investigate that. That whole thing about noticing the thing without acting on it is huge. Huge. For me. No, it's and, for everybody. It's the essence of Dharma as I understand it, because it's freedom. It's freedom from conditions, circumstances and conditioning. Yeah, because it's real choice and agency. Like there's this big thing I remember, you know, well, Buddhism is about choice. You get to have choice and you have to make the choice and you're the one who chooses and you're the one. And I'm like, well, sort of, right. I get that. Meaning like I'm accountable, right? And you can talk about karma. You can talk yeah. about other things in terms of ancestral or whatever, lifetimes. But you can also talk about the fact that unless I know I have choice, I don't have choice unless I'm aware of the fact that I can make a choice that's different from the one that I have, you know, it's hard to actually find the me underneath or beneath that can then step in with a wise, wiser response because that autopilot is so quick. Yep. And so creating air trigger. Yeah. You get pushed and you get the knee jerk re reaction. 
Right. And so like in the traditions of, you know, sitting and stuff like that, you're, you're really cultivating your ability to notice all this stuff without getting up. Like Jack Cornfield, you know, he talks about, oh, I thought I was going to die of restlessness. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit here and die of restlessness. He's like, oh, I'll, you know, die like three times. If on the third time I'm not dead, you know, then I'll get up or do whatever I need to do, you know. But when we train ourselves that way, that can be part of it. But the other part of it is, is for me personally, what's been really beneficial is learning how to regulate my actual nervous system by the ways in which I can sense, you know, with felt sensations, bodily sensations, almost like the Goenka, you know, Vipassana stuff, and also with my breath and learning what's happening in my body, this interoception, this ability to recognize, ooh, tightness in the chest, ooh, clenching in the jaw. Ooh, goopiness in the belly and not immediately jump from that to biting somebody's head off, but saying, okay, let me just pause there for a second. Because what I learned is emotions rise and fall in like anywhere from 30 to 90 seconds. And so you get back online in short order if you don't push the nuclear button, you know? Um, and then you, once you settle, it's a little bit easier to kind of say, oh, right, I can now do this or not do this, but at least I'm in a place of real choice and not just conditioning. That's been my experience for me. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but it's been really liberating to have that as uh, something that's come into the fray because I never had that. No, well, most of us didn't learn that growing up, although my grandmother Grandma Ann uh, Zakharov, who probably never heard of Buddhism or mindfulness, you know, Buddhism, Shmoodism. But she gave me my first lesson in, like, mindful anger management when I was six or seven. And she said, Jeffrey, kick, uh, count to ten before you hit back. And I said, Granny, I can't count to ten. That's way too long. She said, well, at least try to count to three. Like, think before you hit back. Yeah. And now as a grown-up, you know, it's the same thing. Like somebody cuts you off in traffic, do you, you know, and you feel like angry, do you jam your foot on the pedal and ram them or you think about the repercussions first? And, and so I you can respond rather than just blindly react. That's the essence of mindful anger management or mindful emotional management. And that's what you were talking about before, about non-reactive awareness. It's so freeing. And then Sharon Salzberg says, when she and her friend were in traffic, her friend said, oh, but we're also part of the traffic. Yeah. Right. Like, and so, like, you realize in terms somebody of else's way. interdependence part that yeah. you're like, oh, wait, this is also, yeah, I'm yeah. also part of the problem here. Well, it's hard to take that responsibility, and that's part of karma, not just what happens to us, what choices we make, and you know, if we feel, uh, if we empathize with others and we cooperate and collaborate or we separate and compete, it's a very different outcome. So Jack Cornfield was just here visiting and um, he, was, he was laughing about how, you know, we all talk about this, but even after 40 or 50 years of meditating every day and practicing and being teaching for decades, it's still a challenge. So I think it's important for people to understand that and not to expect the struggle to end, you know, which is like a false idealism. You know, uh, even the Dalai Lama, who I know pretty well, and, you know, he, he knows me. Uh, he says he gets angry or he gets hot. I'll leave it at that. When he sees certain images, of course, he's like in his 80s now. But he used to say that. But it's what you do with it that makes the difference and what you channel that energy into. You can use it constructively or destructively. You can keep reacting in the same way when your buttons are pushed and you just dig your rut deeper or you can get out of your rut and start a new habit or a rut that's not so ruddish and you're not so stuck in. And then you make you have new ones. and you know, like freestyle dancing or freestyle poetry. You don't have to fo follow iambic pentameter or I don't. <laughs> rhyme or the sonnet form. And yet there's something poetic about it that lifts the spirit that every, you know, that people can be, you know, feel like music. What is music? Is music just sounds? It is the Zen music of the four minutes of silence that John Cage gave us in Lincoln Center on the piano, you know, his famous piece, and it blew everybody's mind because they call it silence, but there's no just thing as silence. You're still hearing things. Maybe not what you expect to hear from the piano, but 
it, it's four minutes of listening and, and the, to the music of being, whatever the sounds are of the ambient existing, you know, environment. So if we listen to, to ourselves, if we're a little more interior, we can hear, learn a lot and, and it's very beautiful. The inner poetry, the inner mantra, whatever you want to call it, the celestial sound, the, you know, the, the breath is a mantra. Every breath, every in-breath and out-breath is like a prayer, as Thomas Merton said. But this takes some um, cultivation or practice. Of course, a little a few pointers or teaching or learning or reading helps. But it also, I think, really helps to not think that you're a piece of shit. And so that you well, can listen yeah. and look at it with that little bit of friendliness and you're not yes. like oh i'm a terrible person oh i'm filled with shame oh i don't deserve oh i'm unworthy i mean all those things that tape can play and then you can laugh at it and be like right thanks for telling me i guess i bought the wrong cd at the store or whatever <laughs> you know but yes. or maybe it's just what is it i think the best question is is you know talked about me asking journal as a journalist me asking people like what they were up to and then turning it around it was more like when i turned it around it was like where did that come from why did i come to believe that beliefs are just hardened thoughts so that means that they're just thoughts that came up for some reason that got reified through habit so that means they can be decalcified also right. And then we can look at it with a certain sense of curiosity and a certain sense of um, even kind of just like playfulness as opposed to such seriousness because there's already all this heaviness around all the trauma yes. and the suffering that if I just kind of am more curious about why did I do that? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, right. That's old or that's new or that's this or whatever. And then not get so caught in it and have a more friendly, lighter relationship with it. Then I go back to this business I was saying earlier about this ground of being, whatever it is, the core of the planet, the presence that's underneath, that's sort of, you know, whatever you want. Yeah. The mystery of it all, I don't know, that it's not, it's not broken, you know, it's not flawed, you know, that, that, that part isn't. So then I can just sit in my seat and not really care too much as much about what's going on. That's the message. That's what we call the natural great perfection in Tibetan. Beyond um, good and bad or perfect and imperfect, just the lawful unfolding of things as they are. You know, the thing, even if it's a, a bad day, it's still subjective. Like it's a rainy day doesn't mean it's a bad day for the flowers and the farmers. It's just a bad day if you happen to be planning a parade. Well, what I loved about all of this stuff, too, is like, what do they say, Nietzsche, Dukkha, and uh, uh, Anatta, right, is the impermanence part. I'm like, it's going to change. That guy who didn't call me back, even though we went on a great date, that, you know, job that you thought you were going to get, that you didn't end up getting, that you had hopes about or whatever, that thing that you wanted that isn't on sale anymore, I don't know, whatever, you know. <laughs> Um, or the larger issues of the peace accord that you thought was going to last that didn't, or the nuclear deal that you thought was going to work but didn't, or whatever. I mean, bigger things. The president you thought might have gotten elected but didn't, or whatever. I mean, these are small and large. Yeah. Then everything changes. And I don't rest in that on my laurels so much, but it is comforting to know that I'm not stuck with it. It's well, I, f I find there's a lot of freedom in... in contemplating that impermanence and so I don't hold on too tight to the things that are passing but just enjoy them as they go by and that, that helps a lot and also to lighten up as you were saying because we're way too serious especially if we're in the spiritual or religious or psychological philosophical field you know then there's a lot of thought and deep thought and it can get a little um, heady and dry and uh, deep, you know, verging on dark in there. You mentioned the harsh inner voice telling you that you're like shit. So I think that's an important subject for people to think about and, you know, to hear it articulated that I think it's, I found it's very worth listening and trying to hear like whose voice that is. Is it, you know, really my inner voice or is it my, you know, strict father or neurotic mother or harsh sports coach, you know, with the ever rising bar, it was never good enough, whatever you did or, or, or what it is. And so then you have a choice, how much you 
um, pay attention to it or not. So sometimes when my mind is going like that, I just feel like I'm the kindergarten teacher and there's all these voices in the kindergarten. But, you know, I'm not, it's not my voice and I'm not a kindergarten kid anymore. I'm, you know, an adult. I can choose which opinions or judgments to um, take seriously. And that really, it really doesn't matter, you know, what other people think of you or even do. Of course, it matters in some way. But, you know, as far as like we're talking spiritually and uh, how to liberate yourself and gain autonomy within interdependence, not just be independent or a hermit or break off, you know, be complacent or indifferent, but very, you know, compassionate and caring, but autonomous, like living a principled life, regardless of what other people do or think. Yeah. And doing the right thing because it's the only thing to be done. I'm not saying what's right and wrong. I'm just saying for you to find out and know that for yourself, like living your right livelihood and your right, you know, whatever you said, lifestyle or eating habits or whatever it is. And I think that's the real challenge. And that's what I often ask people is not just what are you doing, you know, but why, what are you, what are you looking for? And how do you expect to get it this way? Well, Rick Hansen told me, he's like, you can't keep going down the tunnel looking for cheese when there's no cheese in that tunnel. You know? yeah, and right. I was like, Oh damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I call it looking for love in all the wrong places. Cause I love yeah. those old 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s songs, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was sort of like, it, and, and I remember actually, it was my therapist, uh, then, my then therapist who told me the first time, you're never going to have a different father. You're never going to have a better father. You're never going to have a father that your friends had or that you wanted to have or the one who could have given you the things yeah. that you deserved to have, but didn't have. And so she was the one who, when I was saying to her, you know, I feel like everybody else is up here and I'm down here because they had this thing and, and I, and I don't, you know, and she said, well, you're not up here in that way, but there are other ways to get up yeah. here, so to speak. And I remember that was a really tough pill to swallow and it took me quite a while to actually absorb it. And this is before I really started um, on the, this path, uh, in terms of Buddhism, but I was a seeker, obviously, doing, you know, a lot of work, a lot of the work, same work you do actually in insight uh, stuff, or that comes up, I should say, in insight naturally. And that really paved the way for me to start to say, oh, you know, like, I got to let some stuff go, because it's not helping me. But it also got me curious about, oh, wait, maybe that's part of the reason why I keep on with this repetitive stuff, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. And then let's figure out what the pattern is. And when I stopped drinking and when I stopped doing certain kinds of behavior, it was easier to have that clear seeing, right? No use of intoxicants. There's a reason it's cause I, then I could start seeing better. Like mm -hmm. the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone is connected. Oh, right. So that's how it, you know, works. And then I could step in and say, all right, well, maybe you don't want to do that. Or maybe this is something worthy of a little bit more investigation or, you know, whatever. But I will say too, you have to be willing to have a certain amount of constancy because you want to fill it with something else. Like the tendency is, is to mm -hmm. keep on, you said earlier, you can't pour water into a cup that's already full, but like I'm a hungry ghost. So I want all my water and all my cups and all the time. <laughs> I'm not, I get anxious when they're only half filled, you know? Well, so. Let me, let me, as a Buddhist scholar, uh, expert, let me straighten you out. You're not a hungry ghost. And you've said that before. You're what they call an asura. It's like a demigod. You have good karma, but you're jealous of what the gods have. Oh, okay. A hungry ghost is a much more desperate situation like an addict. Well, I used to be that. Well, I know, but you're not. Okay. You're, you're not now. You may think you have an addictive personality, but you know, you're successful and functioning and beautiful and smart and healthy and alive. And so that's like a demigod's realm. That's like a high human existence. 
but jealous of what the other ones have. You know, like, I don't know, Avis is always number two. So it's a good example of this, like wanting to be number one and never getting there. Yeah, yeah. No, I've had to accept where I'm at and all of the things that that means. And, you know, I my mom tells a story of how she had to accept that her hips were always going to be a certain size because she's shaped uh -huh. like, you know, I don't know, Lana Turner or something. <laughs> but back in the day, everybody wanted to be shaped like a bean pole, you know, and yeah. she was captain of the cheerleading team and she was on her, you know, field hockey <laughs> captain. But she she would like take her hips and jam them into the door jam and take a rolling pin and try oh to- Oh my God. Yeah, well, you wonder where I would get like body image issues, right, growing up. I mean, what did she have, an extra five pounds? I don't know. Some airbrushed magazine cover photos. Well, she grew up in the 50s, 60s. Yeah. But still, it's it's just funny to know that, that that whole thing of wanting to be better and just, she finally said, I have to accept it. She had lost a ton of weight and she still had the same shape that she was like, well, I look like I'm starving and I still have <laughs> I <can't> hip bones. <laughs> so. Well, that's a good example, Francesca, of I think the the key point here, which is like, in secular world, in psychology, they call it acceptance therapy. Tara Brock's great book, Radical Acceptance, talks about this a lot, where acceptance has its own transformative magic. It's not like complacence or indifference. And if we don't accept ourselves and love ourselves, you know, we can't really accept and love others. And it's a sad scenario. But the good news is we're heavily conditioned, but we can recondition and decondition. Well, as somebody who's been on television for two decades, I'll tell you the amount of non-acceptance that had to go into being ready for the camera based on the networks liked and wanted yeah. uh, was so great. And I mean, the things that I've heard from people directed toward me and to others. One of my girlfriends was told by uh, a network executive, your nostrils are too big. Oh, my God. Um, so you say you're too fat or something, or you're well, too tall. No, they said that to me, but to her, who had a perfect figure. It's a nostril problem. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, because I, I would gesticulate a lot and I'm expressive, you know, they'd be like, don't move your eyebrows so much. Don't move your face so much. Don't use your hands so much. <laughs> or uh, you're breathing too loud. Or, um, you know, we don't like the way that you did your makeup and your hair and your jewelry. And then, you know, all of these other things. And I just, it got to a point where, you know, I don't know if people are listening to this on a podcast or if they're going to watch the video, probably the podcast, but is that my hair now, as you notice, kind of looks like Diana Ross back in the day. It's just big, yeah. bushy, full. It's beautiful and plentiful. <laughs> I call it my chia pet hair. But having- well, You look like the goddess Medusa. Oh, Medusa. Yeah, she's, well, that's, there's a whole- With her snaky, you know, waterfall cascade of hair all around. Yeah, but didn't she- you know, freeze everybody to stone. I don't know. I forget. <laughs> yeah, that's not. Maybe that's you. I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope. No, <laughs> no, we're just talking about hair. We're talking about hair. And so through being on television for so long, it was short and brittle from all this highlighting and all of this uh, straightening and chemicals mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And I had become so not myself. I didn't know who I was anymore. I had contorted myself into someone to be on television. And I had contorted myself to be into someone to be with my ex. And I, there was no me left. Now, it's not that that presence never, ever was not there. But the light had been dimmed to such a degree or to such an extent that it was no longer, you know, the lamp in the darkness. It was not lighting the way for me in any way. And this woman told me about my hair. Oh, I can get you to grow your hair back, follow my lead. And for two and a half years, I did what she told me to do, which in my case, as a woman of Haitian, Dominican, and Italian-American descent, multi-ethnic, multiracial, um, she said, put in these extensions, I'll weave it into your hair in these cornrows, and you'll wear this fake hair on air, mm. or other people's hair, really. They had, you know, it had yeah. been and um and we'll grow your natural hair back and this was a process that took about two and a half years of every six months every every eight weeks I would take out the hair and put in the new hair and all the while looking very presentable on on tv but it took me forever to get my hair back this this big bushy hair and I could never wear my own hair as it is now on television because they don't allow it because it doesn't look good in the box 
everything has to literally fit in the box. And so it's just really interesting to me that now that I'm not forcing myself to do the television part of it anymore, that I can actually be more myself. And that includes looking more like my authentic self. They would get mad when I would get too tan or get too pale, you know, really. I mean, like, and, and, and I lived in Florida and the people would be like, you can't tell, you can't go to tanning. That's bad. I'm like, I'm not at tanning. We live in Florida. I play tennis. Yeah. I'm Haitian and Dominican. <laughs> I'm not going to a tanning bed, you know. I was outside getting some vitamin D. And so it's just funny to me that it took letting all that go and who I thought I needed to be and all that performative stuff that a lot of people thought was glamorous because, of course, I met all these celebrities and I yeah. went on all these parties right. and I did all that stuff. I'm not, it was never, it never made me happy. It was just that I felt like, oh, good, now I'm, at this echelon, or I'm in this cool kids club, mm -hmm. or whatever, but now I can actually be myself, or be in my body, mm -hmm. and be in my own hair, or whatever, and that's so much more liberating, and I just really feel for a lot of my girlfriends that are still on television right now, because they have to wear wigs and spanks and all kinds of things that you guys don't have to worry about. No, it's a tough business. I've been on TV, interviewed a lot. Also, I've been on the Bill Maher show uh, and the Colbert Report twice and CNN and Peter Jennings. And by the time they put you through the green room, you feel like you've been detailed through the car wash and you'd better not move, think, or, you know, drink, even drink water because you might get a water stain on your, whatever, your shirt. It's pretty uh, stiff, but um, you know, it's workable. It's just a small part of life really. But the question about authenticity and who we are being ourselves is really vital today, especially with our materialistic and you know, over information age. There's so much coming at us and so much information and so little understanding, knowledge and self-realization and wisdom, just so much mere information. So I think it's important to work on that and find a way to do that. And it's easy to say, be yourself or be authentic, but you have to know yourself to be yourself. But isn't that the whole point? Like I was talking to Mark Epstein um, earlier and, you know, he was saying the ego, not the ego, right? Like in Buddhism and this whole idea of in Western psychology that you need to have a sense of who you really are before you can start yeah. letting it go. That's right. Well, that's like growing up. You have to individuate before you become, you know, really realize interdependence. You have to separate enough to reconnect. And like I said before, become autonomous within interdependence, not just be separate and independent like a teenager. The Buddha saying is, you have to become someone before you become no one or realize no separate, permanent, personal self and more being your transpersonal being or your, your wholeness or naturalness. So that's the kind of practice that we do in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition into mystical or high Tibetan Buddhism, uh, like direct access and nowness awareness is, is Buddha now, not later and recognize who and why you are, not superimpose, you know, Buddhist haircut or Buddhist clothes or Buddhist diet or, you know, just because you sit on the floor. The Dalai Lama used to rib us for using chopsticks and Tibetan instruments and things like that. And he said, don't pianos and organs sound much better in a big building with a crowd? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was good. It was good. As he said, Chairs are much more comfortable, especially for you Western people. Why are you always sitting on the floor like that? And all you, and then asking about knee pain and back pain. Let's just sit in a good posture in a chair, you know, that you won't fall asleep in. That's a good way to meditate and relax. Just like when you go to movies, you can sit there for two hours somehow. But when you try to meditate, you can't sit there for <laughs> half an hour, 15 minutes. So it's, maybe you have to reframe this way of thinking. Yeah, that's that's great. He does have a good sense of humor. Yeah. I've never I've never met His Holiness, but it's certainly uh, you know from the videos I've seen and whatnot. Um, you know, he, I he think is very happy and joyous. Also, I've been to the movies with him. I saw him cry. You know, he's well, a person. He's yeah, a, a, a say, human so being. 
as well as a, you know, saying like wise person, wise guy. Well, he, talking to the wise girl from Brooklyn. So he's a wise guy, emphasis on the wise. I would say the wise. And you know, it's funny because I was doing um, uh, one of my shows, my wise girl shows earlier today with a, a guy who just created a new men's, pro-feminist men's magazine called Stand Magazine. You know, stand for what you believe in a way to invite men to have full range of their emotional experience and to not cut off and separate as well, say. <laughs> right <Yeah>. but to <laughs> really... <laughs> right like what does it mean to be uh, vulnerable dangerous risky right yeah and I'm sure women feel it too but it's a stereotypical male issue or reaction right a formidable strong false front like john wayne type stereotype yeah, and I just think that it's that, that whether it's applied to men in particular under, you know, some notion of what masculinity or manhood is supposed to be or whatever, um, or whether it's been uh, adopted by, by women, because I know plenty of women who have uh, a lot of sort of narcissistic, patriarchal, you know, qualities and tendencies, even though they're, they're, they're women. Um, it's that, you know, the power over versus the, um, you know, empowering, you know, with it's the, 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 the ranking, not the linking as, um, you know, Gloria Steinem would say, for example, and, and, and that idea of how that is the root of dissatisfaction and suffering. The root of it all is the cutting off, right? And the feeling like we have to do it all alone because the only way we can stay on top of the heap is if we're pushing somebody else down. And that can be really lonely because there's only room for me up here. It's a nice illusion. Yes. It's lonely at the top. Splendid isolation, we call it. So I don't have to be at the top. We can all hang out, you know, like there's only room for one. <laughs> well, we're getting more horizontal, although we still have a class structure in our supposedly classless society. But I do think we are uh, approaching a more horizontal, you know, of course, we're not there. Just like racism and homophobia and you know gender bias are not gone but i think we're interestingly getting a, um, a more natural hierarchy of merit and of sharing and of collective and of a acting together rather than just a, like a hierarchy of power but it's challenging and also the pendulum swings as we see with our elections and things but i have a lot of hope for this uh, generation the news is often seems bad and depressing and, you know, besides 9-11 and other terrible things, you know, we see it every day with the suicide bombings and school shootings and many other things, the opioid um, epidemic and, and so on. Um, but we have, you know, the Black Lives Matter too and the Me Too movement and other, you know, still going on. We're evolving still. We haven't given up. And even though I might get depressed from the news, so I try not to be a news junkie, you know, um, just be informed enough to know, know what I need to know and have some helpful opinions for the younger people that ask me stuff. But I think it's a very important to connect with people one-to-one -one and, and see that all of that, you know, takes place in a certain dimension but there's still children being born and people falling in love and, you know, people doing, what do you call it, you know, loving kindness for no good reason and all acts of loving kindness for no good reason. And uh, whenever I see a young people, I look in their eyes and they have such an optimism that it gives me hope. No, that's beautiful. And I mean, that's because we have such a negativity bias. We're always, you know, sort of wired for survival. We're not wired for well-being. So we have what, anywhere from a five to a 100 to one ratio that we need to like implant the goodness seeds as opposed to just uh, get stuck on the other ones. But I will say about Black Lives Matter or equality and those kinds of things. I mean, I've, based on my trainings and teachings, elected to to take more classes about implicit bias and unconscious bias as it pertains to race specifically in this country. So I can understand more of my own blind spots because mm -hmm. even though I'm multi-ethnic, yes. I grew up in a white household in a white town with, you know, the white family and, you know, I, I didn't really experience myself as um, a person who- Marginal. 
yeah, yeah, I, I didn't have discriminated against. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really have all of that. And yet at the same time, I never denied that, like, yeah, this is my hair. You know, people who are blondies don't have this kind of hair and you know, whatever. And so I ended up learning so much over these classes that I've been taking and and really just understanding more that so much of this is about greed and about fear at a fundamental level. And it's not really and, and, and race as a social construct is about an artificial implementation of division so that there's this business of, you know, some can have and some can't, where the natural tendency had been to, in fact, come together, right? To, in fact, share, to, in fact, help one another out. So it's in violation of that. I mean, it's a, it's a real, you know, took a long time, 450 years to try and, you know, make this happen. And yet, when you look at folks like, um, you know, Lama Rod Owens or, or Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, their book, uh, you know, Radical Dharma, a lot of what they talk about when they talk about anger or the energy of anger and using that it's not to stay in the anger it's not to be angry people it's to say well how can that energy be used for good and also that we belong to one another that there's no way we can deny that mm -hmm. and that we can pretend that we own or we can cloister ourselves in certain kinds of ways and that it's not optional at a certain level we have to kind of opt in to recognizing the ways in which we have been programmed about this issue in particular, and also about gender issues or even about ability or about you know other things. Right. And from that, then we can have a place where we can be educated, and the folks who are the people of color aren't the ones having to be doing the education, right? So white identified folks can actually say, yeah, there are classes online at whiteawake.org or other groups that you can find. And then we can have messy conversations about subjects that aren't easy, but are better than not having them when they're done with the right intention. The right intention, which is to want to be harmonious and co-belonging and all of that and not to be repeatedly harming one another. And that whole shift in perspective, I think, is really important. Is It's not like the shame spiral, right? Like white racial fragility, you know? Um, it's not just white fragility. It's white racial fragility. It's not stuck in the shame spiral on that, right? I'm such a bad person. Oh, no, we need to do reparations, or don't we? Or maybe we should, or maybe how don't we just like actually just start to have a conversation with somebody about this and get educated so that we don't sound like we're stupid when we're having the conversation because there's plenty of online classes about it and plenty of books about it. Start there. You know, it's not that hard, but it's maybe, you know, not Netflix on a Friday night, but how much Netflix can you watch on a Friday night? So you recommending wideawake.com or org? Dot org is a place start? They're a place to start that um, they grew out of Tarbrox, Nagan, DC. And so mm -hmm. that's one um, organization. Yes. They offer online classes once every quarter or so. Uh, and they're not expensive. I think less than $100. And it's maybe three or four Sunday afternoons. Um, and they give you homework and you know research assignments and also learning about like what happened with Native Americans and learning the yeah. history of genocide and really sort of taking accountability, like what land are you on, you know? Do you even know like where we sit, you know? Um, whose land is this? And, mm -hmm. and, and just sort of beginning to increase as we talk about our panoramic awareness in mindfulness and in, you know, Dzogchen and Mahamudra, what is that panoramic, you know, sky gazing, you know, ah, meditation, really, right? Well, in a certain way, it's kind of like opening to all that's here, which includes mm -hmm. this, Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it includes yeah. this too. So Wide Awake is one. Patty Dye, D-I-G-H, is another woman who's done um, another class uh, that's online that's inexpensive. Yeah. I know um, Joshua uh, B. Lafia and uh, Julio Rivera at Zen Compass are offering a brand new online class, I think, for uh, people of color identified folks. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of resources out there um, that if anybody wants them, they can contact me and I'd be sure to send them along. How do they contact you, Francesca Maxime? <laughs> um, 
you can find me on Your social media website. What? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's all of that. I mean, the easiest one is just my name on Twitter and, and Instagram and stuff. F R A N C E S C A M A X I M E. And it's Francesca wise girl, Maxime on Facebook. That's a wise girl. If they, if they look for wise girl podcasts, I probably find you. Yeah. On SoundCloud, that'll be there. And on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel under Francesca Maxime where all the wise girl stuff is. And so you can find me there and shoot me a message on any of those things. But really I'm just trying to share, like, listen, this has been my journey. I've been grateful that I was gifted the opportunity to do this. Um, a lot of folks say, how can you do this? How you're devoting all your time to this. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, my mom, you know, she always said, oh yeah, Walden, you know, like Thoreau, he was at the pond yeah. for a couple of years, but his mom was bringing him mail and sandwiches. Yeah, right. And, and she's, been that, help. she's been that for me. That's so, beautiful. I, I, you know, like, mom. Hips you, gotta give, you gotta give credit where credit is due, you know? Yeah, no, none of us can do it alone. That's right. And, and that's real, because, you We're know. together. Absolutely. So, yeah. And people are beautiful, really. Everybody's, we're all, you know, looking for more or less the same thing through different ways and feeling the anxiety and insecurity and but that out of this era. That difference, though, between love and attachment, like, that was my first big lesson, you know, in terms of the near enemies of unconditional love versus, like, romantic love or attachment, this tit-for-tat thing where I'm going to do this for you if you do this for yeah. me. Or even in friendship, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. How that's just such a rabbit hole of like dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness of dukkha, right? If you, yeah. if you can just kind of be there and try to offer what you can offer, it's hard, especially, I haven't figured it out, especially when it comes to romantic relationships, that's for sure. But, you know, how do you treat yourself well or be treated well and have boundaries that are appropriate and have needs and preferences and all of that while also being able to be interdependent and not just saying, you know, I'm going to manipulate you into making you do something or, or withhold from you that aversive, you know, stuff if you don't do what I want. So life is the practice, really. I just see it as the practice. Life is the practice. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, Francesca, thank you. Wonderful. You awoke us all now. <laughs> Life is the practice, and it's beautiful, really reconditioning and deconditioning and making different, better choices and being happy, you know, being content, not faking it, but content for now and still striving, let's say, or whatever you call it, journeying, seeking, very important. So. I, I'm, you know, into awakening together. I, my recent book is about this and seeing through the illusion of separateness. And it's very important. Loneliness is like the cancer of the modern society, as Mother Teresa said. So including more in our circle of loving and learning to love, not just trying to get love from outside. Very important. Yeah, that's what Sharon says. It's a capacity, not, I say it's a verb, not a noun, right? Yes, right. Love it. Active. So. Thank, you, thank you, Mama. Thank you. And let's see each other again soon and be well. Thank you. Be well.